Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. A dog watch is an evening shift of early or late duty for the people who undertake it. This dog watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. Today, we have our first Hall of Famer on the podcast, and it is with great pleasure that I introduce Dan Egan, member of the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, extreme athlete, filmmaker, soccer coach, and all-around connector. In our conversation, we talk about the development of extreme sports, what it is like to jump out of a helicopter on skis, and off of the Berlin Wall on skis, and how skiing has helped Dan interface with the world and its people. We also discuss Dan's experience working with and learning from Warren Miller, his recent book, 30 Years in a White Haze, and we talk skiing and outdoor style from duct tape to Alps and meters. In this episode, we really find our way about the entire slope and get to talk with Dan about our place in nature and different ways to experience the natural world. So let's get to our conversation with Dan Egan. Good morning, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us on the Dog Watch. Nice to be here, Michael. Nice to be here. I know that you've spent a good part of your life traveling the world and being in the mountains and on the ocean, um, but you've settled in New Hampshire in the White Mountains, I believe. And how long is it there until the snow starts to fly? Yeah, I'm sitting here uh, in the beautiful White Mountains of uh, central New Hampshire. And, you know, it's just that time of year where we're having some cool nights. The leaves are starting to turn. And uh, it's beautiful here. Uh, it's beautiful here year-round. Um, and, you know, the snow will start flying here typically in November. Um, and, you know, it's it's just New Hampshire's that sort of place where, you know, I'm five and a half, six miles from the highway, but I'm on a dirt road, in the, you know, and I don't see a neighbor. So it's uh, close enough to get around and far enough to get away. People from outside of the region sometimes underestimate the beauty of the white mountains and also the 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 fierceness of them um it's not there's some pretty aggressive weather patterns and and places to be up there so it's it's nice i would imagine especially for you being relatively close to civilization as you say even further off to boston and other things but you're really pretty far out so yeah no it's great i mean having grown up in boston you know, I love Boston and it's so familiar to me. And of course, Logan is, excuse me, Logan is my second home. So Logan um, being the airport. It, yeah. 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 So in, in and out of there. And I call uh, Highway 93 my my driveway. So. <laughs> so speaking of that, like, you know, you're camped in up there now, you have a place or whatever, but still doing a lot of traveling. Are there any places you've been recently? I know obviously COVID slowed a lot of us down, but um, just kind of wondering if there's some cool places you've been recently or where, where you've, where your peregrinations have taken you. Yeah. Well, you know, COVID definitely, you know, changed a lot. Um, but, you know, Europe for me every winter is, you know, sort of where I go to, really settle in and feel the alpine roots of my profession and the culture. Um, and recently I've been working in Bermuda quite a bit. Um, 
working on a new movie down there in Bermuda. So I'm uh, leaving for Bermuda tomorrow. So I've been bouncing back and forth between the pink beaches of Bermuda and the white mountains all summer long. Wow, that sounds rough. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Can you say anything about the movie or, or is it still, is it embargoed or what, what's what's it about? Yeah, the movie's uh, the Clyde Best story. Yeah, so the Cl- Clyde Best is the Jackie Robinson of English soccer. He, uh, He's a Bermudian who played for West Ham in the mid-60s. And uh, he's not the first black player in England, but he's the first black player at the top division in England. And he was 17 when he left the island of Bermuda. And he ended up scoring 58 goals for West Ham. He's a legend in England. Um, He's a big, uh, tall guy, very powerful forward. And, you know, there had never been a black player uh, in the first division, you know, of any team in England. And he uh, overcame lots of racism uh, they threatened to throw acid on him when he ran through the tunnel of the stadium. They would chant monkey and throw bananas. Um, and Clyde is a big, noble guy. He's got a noble character. And what we say, in the, you know, we say about the film is he survived in that atmosphere by basically doing what his parents told him to do. Be nice to others. Right. And that Bermudian culture also has a lot of what I call noble traits, noble character. They're very friendly. Um, And Clyde, you know, his sort of life motto is, if you can't win, don't lose. So it goes towards perseverance and uh, the end game, the big picture. In the fall of 1971, West Ham was the first team ever to start two black players. Uh, It was Clyde Best and A.D. Coker. Um, And uh, Addy was 17 at the time when he played with Clyde. And then in the spring of 72, West Ham started three black players, uh, Addie, Clyde, and Clive Charles. And had Clive Charles's uh, older brother, John, not been sick, they would have started four that day. So um, West Ham had been on the forefront of uh, race relations for a long time. and so Clyde's a legend, and uh, his story's never been told. Wow. Um, so we're making that movie, and it's pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because one of the things about you is that I understand, I believe in college, you played for played soccer for Babson, right? Yeah. And so you're a soccer person. You're also a sailing person. And you, most, I think most famously, are a, you know extreme skier. So you've... Obviously, you got this through your soccer side of things. How did that come about? How did you get interested in this story? Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, I went to the only all-male one-year prep school in the country in Maine, Bridgeton Academy. Okay. It's a home for wayward jocks. Um, And they teach you how to study up there. And while I was at Bridgeton, I played that year with Jerry Best, Clyde's nephew. Um, and Jerry came from the island Bermuda and he told us all about his uncle Clyde and Jerry uh, was the best soccer player I'd ever seen. And he first day I met him, he said, Hey Egan, your job is to pass me the ball. My job is to score. And, uh, <laughs> Jerry and I teamed up on a lot of goals. We had a phenomenal season, great team. And, um, over the years, uh, with my sailing, 
in and out of Bermuda, whether it be the Marion Bermuda race or boat deliveries, I would stay in touch with Jerry. I'd go down and see Jerry and keep in touch. And when I worked for the America's Cup and from 2015 to 2017, I was based in Bermuda, close to the best family. And Clyde would come at night, his uncle, and sit with me on the deck of the hotel and we'd talk uh, football. And his book had just come out, The Acid Test. And uh, as I was leaving Bermuda, he asked me if I would be interested in his movie. And um, so I thought about it and and I, in passing, mentioned it to my ski coach, who I'm still in touch with from Bridgeton Academy. And my ski coach said, well, you know, the Speaker of the House of Parliament in Bermuda is a Bridgeton Academy grad. So I called Speaker Lister. And of course, his childhood hero was none other than Clyde Best. And so Speaker Lister and I started talking about the movie. And so he put me on the phone with uh, the Minister of Sport. And as Speaker Lister was telling the Minister of Sport how we were connected through Bridgeton, the guys started to laugh. He was bridged in 1988, which is crazy for such a small school to have such a diverse background. Um, so here we are. We've uh, we've found funding uh, supported by the Bermuda government and others, and uh, we're off and running. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to that story. It sounds like a yeah. really um, important one to tell. Yeah, and it some is. really uh, you know not just about sport, which I think is some of the things that we'll discuss here. So you know, by way of introduction, you've had an incredible career, right? And and you soccer, sailing, etc. And um, definitely didn't done, um, skiing and extreme sports, ski movies. Um, you're in the ski and snowboard hall of fame. Um, just so you know that you're the first hall of famer for anything we've had on this, this podcast. (laughs) So, you know, just, just, you know, Tom Brady might be next. I don't know. He's not hall of fame yet, but you know, we'll see. Um, just joking, but you also, you know, some listeners may know you from the Design by Tradition podcast that you do. And some, um, I think, of our listeners really are just generally interested in, you know, how we experience the natural world, how things get out there. And we'll be, you know, really starting to get to know you here. So I'm curious, you know, it's hard to sum up all the things you've done, but I wanted to start in one place where, you know, it seems like a main place you're defined is as an extreme athlete, right? As part of that sort of development of this extreme sports. And I'm curious if you might just say a little bit about how you developed as a quote unquote extreme athlete as the quote unquote extreme athletic pursuits took place. Do you know what I mean? So describe for people who might not understand exactly how that came about and how you came about, how did it? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. The term extreme and what we call today, extreme sports. Um, you know, back in the seventies and the eighties, you know, we called it surfing, skiing, skateboarding. Right. Um, but, but as you get it, move into the eighties, um, extreme skiing, jumping off of cliffs, skiing, the impossible steep faces in Europe really took on a life of its own. And we predated sort of the skateboard craze and sort of you know surfing as an extreme sport um in as its own genre right and i credit this in my book 30 years in a white haze to the vhs tape 
you know, extreme skiing embraced VHS and VCRs early um, and put the movement on the forefront of what, you know, quickly got overtaken by uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, surf, as they embraced that technology as well. But skiing, we were out in front of it. You know, when you look at uh, some of the early movies we did with the North Face, we were some of the first films uh, VHS films that were made with no narration, just music, uh, really on the forefront of music video, just rock music and action, uh, location and action. Um, and, you know, that that was a shift from sort of what you remember as The Endless Summer or a Warren Miller movie where there was a lot of narration. And as an athlete at the time, you know, there was only a handful of a handful of us in the U.S. that were making a living. You know, if you, if you could even call it that back then, uh, skiing. Um, you know, what was really interesting was the Mayer brothers, the legendary Olympians for the U.S., had retired, and the industry was shifting and looking for something new and exciting. And here were a group of kids in day glow suits, one piece suits, and big hair and headbands. Do you know it? We I always feel like we were an extension of the free doggers from the 70s. We were an expression. Um, and you know, as I say in my book, we're we were maybe not so much a sport as a form of entertainment. Um, and that's where the split between the true alpinists and the extreme skiers of Europe and the US was, in my mind. You know, in Europe, they really were skiing things where you fell, you you could die. If you fell, you would die. And as Americans, when we went over to step onto that terrain, it was a lot of education involved for us. You know, uh, not only the avalanches uh, mixed with crevasses, but the big, long, exposed faces. So, you know, that took a, a, a skill set uh, to develop. But it was an exciting time. You know, it was an exciting time. And yeah. we were flown all over the world uh to make these films and i i describe it as a you know bit of a rock star mo you know rock band moment that we were you know just being flown i was on the road for 10 months a year uh every year um and you know warren miller being the godfather of action sports and really the the high bar for action sports films nobody's ever made more movies in the U.S. than Warren Miller. He's the most, uh, you know, produced more films than any other Hollywood producer. Uh, you know, he did an annual film for over 50 years um, himself. He shot it. He edited it. He he sold it. He toured with it. So my roots were there. I, I Warren and I got along really well. And uh, I modeled a lot of my career after Warren and his mentorship. Um, so those those were exciting times. And when I said to Warren, you know, I wanted to go all around the world wherever CNN was, he loved that idea. You know, when we jumped off the Berlin Wall with skis on, that those shots went around the world. I mean, if you think of skiing as a, 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 a really sport of freedom and you combine that with the Berlin Wall, it was enormous. Uh, and, you know, I'll never forget landing in no man's land. Um, and you know, the East German guards were months before they would have shot you, 
just said, you know, if this is what the East is exporting, please go back. The West, yeah. You know, yeah. So I've got a few follow-up questions. I mean, I think maybe we one just with the to stay on the Berlin Wall. Like, yeah. how did it come about? Like to jump off? Like, was that planned or was that a spontaneous thing or what? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, we were we were shooting a film for a Japanese company in Val d'Isère, France, and you know, a bunch of ski bums. We were jammed into a studio apartment, five different nationalities. Uh, I think there were six or seven of us living in that place and in a family. There was a three-year-old baby living in that space. The French holidays were coming and we couldn't afford to stay. So we uh, we needed a place to go. So we I, I just said to the, you know, the crew, let's go to the Berlin Wall. Like this, the most cultural icon happening right now. And we should go. And so we packed up, everybody got into a van, including the three, the family of the three-year-old and away we went. And, uh, you know, we just went. And then of course, Warren, when we told him we were going, he was like, go. Like there was no hesitation for him. Um, he understood what that would be. Um, and, you know, going back to that time, the perspective of the, uh, Eastern Bloc opening up, you couldn't fathom it. I mean, to me, I, what I say when I speak, you know, to to groups is you you that's like saying to a kid today, one day YouTube won't exist. You know, in the 70s and 80s, the Cold War, we would not have imagined that wall coming down. That was the furthest thing from our mind. And that shook the foundation of culture on so many levels. Of course, Gorbachev just passed away. Um, yeah. and it's so relevant to me. So, you know, after that experience with the Berlin wall, we just, that was our theme. Let's go yeah. to these places. And, and, but as far as just getting up on the wall and like jump, <laughs> like, how, did, was that planned or were you, were you just there and be like, okay, I guess we'll just kind of climb up and like, we just, that... uh, we just ended up getting on shoulders <laughs> and then kind of pressing each other up onto the wall. <laughs> And the wall was, of course, it had this rounded piece of cement on it. And yeah, we would just, we got up there and then we had to get our skis on. Yeah. On top of the wall. And uh, we landed, of course, there was no snow. I mean, we yeah, landed in mud puddles. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the whole thing was just crazy. That's great. So Warren Miller, just a little bit about him. I mean, again, I think he's sort of a legend or not sort of, I, he's a legend as sort of in the film industry and especially in, in ski movies, et cetera. He under, I understand started out, you know, just going in this little teardrop trailer up into the mountains and just kind of hanging out with a, one of his friends and, and shooting film. What, what place did he f- sort of fit in your life? I mean, I've heard you talk a little bit in different contexts about your relationship, but like, who was he to you? Well, Warren to me was, you know, he was a mentor to me that, that basically had an underlining theme, which was you can do whatever you want. There's no book that says you have to live here and work there. You can live and work wherever you want. And of course, his themes in the movie was, you better do it this year or you'll be one year older when you do. And he repeated that every year. Hmm. So to me, when I 
when I first, I mean, we had skied for Warren, but it was hard to meet Warren. You would film for the movie, but Warren wasn't on those shoots. So Warren was like this figure, this man that you never really got to meet. It was Walt Disney, you know? Um, interesting note, as a boy, he was Walt Disney's paper boy. But, uh, <laughs> and his signature was modeled after Walt Disney. But um, when I finally, one summer, I got... I, they flew me to Argentina, uh, South America, to Chile to ski. And in the summer of 89, I was so excited about this. I went, the, the offices were in Hermosa Beach. So I went early because I wanted to see the office. And I got to sit with Warren. And uh, he goes, you're early. And I said, yeah. He goes, uh, well, you can't be early around here and not work. Why don't you sweep the floor? And so... I, he goes, I went into the editing room and swept up all his outtakes. And I wasn't going to throw away Warren Miller footage. So I said, Warren, what do you want me to do with this? And he goes, why don't you make a movie? I've always wanted somebody to make a movie of my outtakes. And uh, he goes, besides, you're the first kid to sweep the floor. And, uh, you know, when I made that little film, he liked it. And he says, now let me teach you to narrate it. So there was a relationship I had with him and the only movie that Warren ever skied in that wasn't his own was mine. He skied in my film, extreme dream. And, you know, that was, was a, that was an honor for me. And um, so Warren was that sort of voice in my head that said, you can go, you can do it. Um, there's no right or wrong way. Just go for it. And Warren's, uh, you know, what I hear today from entrepreneurs, you know, they're building something to sell. And Warren was building something to last. And I think when you look at the great brands of America, the founders built things to last, not to sell, not to flip. And Warren looked at that from a perspective of one movie ticket sold, right? So every person who came into the theater was a success. I called him one night. He goes, how was your show? And I said, Warren, it was terrible. The movie, fell, the theater, the screen fell over in the middle of the show. And I only had one person. He go, he said, well, did anybody buy you dinner? And I said, actually, the guy did. He bought me dinner. He goes, you huh. had a great night. Huh. And, you know, that lesson of like, what do you guard? What do you, what do you, how are you sort of qualifying success? Um, and when I talk to entrepreneurs today, I try to put that in perspective. Like, what does it feel like to be successful? It feels chaotic. It feels stressful. It feels like it might not work, right? You're on the edge. Uh, and a lot of people just think, no, success is, oh, I got my feet up. I'm eating chocolate-covered bonbons, and it's all yeah. good. But that's not what success feels like when you're in it. Success is like a soccer game. You know, it's like it's action, it's motion, it's everything going around you. There's an ebb and a flow. And Warren pointed that out to me um, in very poignant ways. And that's what I've held on to. Fantastic. And it, I think that emphasis on meaning and value versus just flipping and and the monetal value is, is a real difference, right? And I think yeah. I appreciate you so talking about that. One last thing that I think relates is when we talk about sort of the quote unquote extreme sports, right? There's sort of the the performance side, 
there's a competition side. And then there's sort of the experiencing the world side, right? When I, and I can imagine for a kid, like, you know, when you were in your twenties or doing this stuff initially, how much of it was sort of for you, the value, was it, uh, you know, competing against other people to be like the best doing a certain flip or whatever. And sorry, I'm not, I'm not into the skiing. I watch it, but I don't know how I would describe those things. So there's competition versus performance, making a great movie versus actually experiencing it yourself and being like, I gotta, I want to do this. I want to jump, make this jump that I've never made before, or just experience that jumping out of a helicopter onto X, Y, or Z. So how do you make sense of those things then and now? Well, one, one thing that, uh, again, Warren would say is that our job as skiers was to complement the place. Hmm. We were supposed to leave it looking better than we found it. So go make a beautiful track down that big face. Uh, and if it's an interesting track, maybe there's a cliff drop or a narrow couloir to ski. Great. But it wasn't that our intention was to jump the cliff. The intention was to make the, the run look amazing, to make it look prettier than, you know, and that's changed over time. You know, now kids are just bombing it, going straight. They're not necessarily, they're adding to the environment, but they may not be let, may not be as beautiful in my mind as what it used to be. It's definitely radical. It's definitely hard, but it's different. So with that in mind, we thought to ourselves, if we're going to leave beautiful tracks, Let's leave them in interesting places. So for us, skiing with the Kurds during the first Persian Gulf War was one of those places where with interesting people, they're being persecuted. There's a battle going on around us and they live in the mountains and the Kurds love to ski. Who knew? Right. Um, and the discovery of that was amazing. So I was into mountain culture. I was into experiencing the nature uh, the culture within the mountains mountains, and what that was all about and the bond that came through sport and in this case, skiing. So, of course, we wanted to be known uh, and, you know, we were building a brand based on living on the edge. But we just we added that to that edge. We expanded that edge to war torn areas. Which seems to be a pretty different thing and, and no judgment here, but it seems like a really different thing when you turn on like the TV now and you see the X games or whatever that is, it's very competitive. Like you've got judges or you've got certain specific things that people are trying to refine. And, and that's just a, that's just a difference. It seems like where you existed in that, you know, even to call it a sport, it is a sport, but it also, also an, a set of experiences and, and a set of both artistic and, I would say cultural interactions, right. That you've described, which is different. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. You know, the, the problem with competitions is somebody has to win yeah. and somebody has to lose. So, and they, then there's judging. So luckily for us, you know, we were on the forefront of that before that developed too much. Um, so we were free of that sort of, you know, now the kids have to prove, you know, if they win it, then they might have a film career versus us. We were right into the film. So, yeah. And, you know, the crazy thing, though, about the natural world and the places in the 80s that we went to. We were so full of hope. That the world would become a safer place. And mm -hmm. 
you wouldn't go to those places that we went today. Um, and that's that to me is really a paradigm that I didn't see coming. You know, yeah. we were so full of hope with the fall of the Eastern Bloc and communism. I spent a lot of time in those countries during those years. It was exciting. And to think about it now, it's changed so much. Yeah. A, a couple more things, like kind of to go back a little bit. Um, I have to ask you about just personally, what's it like to get out of like get out of a helicopter and like go onto a ski slope? I mean, you've done that probably a lot, I would think, right? Yeah. Isn't that something you did a lot? Oh yeah, love yeah. it. So, what is that? You know, back in the day, right? You would be, you know, especially early on in your time. What's that experience like? I I can't quite put my finger on it. You see footage of someone, right? Like you've got the chopper or whatever. Like, what is it like in the moment, especially for a younger person early on? Like, what did what did it feel like? Like, is it different or is it just like, oh yeah, it's just kind of like getting off the slope and you're into it, or is that actually something that's really cool? Well, I mean, heli skiing at any age is something you cannot do enough of, you know, and it will change your paradigm of the world of nature and your place in it. Hmm. You know, one, a helicopter is one of the most exciting, uh, you know, machines ever. Uh, it's cool. It takes off and wild. It takes in dips and so fun to be in. And particularly, you know, we try to fly in A-star smaller birds, not, not the big commercial birds that you see that some of the bigger operations run where there's 12 people. My clients and I these days were in, you know, four to five seaters and uh, super exciting. And I describe to people, you know, when, when that copter peels away in Alaska and it's just me and you standing on top of that summit, you're a long way from home. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, the wind and, you know, the one thing about mountain peaks and mountain ridges is cornices. So it, it looks wild. Uh, the, some of the, you know, take drop offs where we are, the heli will just tip in, you know, sort of rotor tip first and you step out onto a small platform. Uh, I get I get jazz just talking about it. Um it's very exciting, it, but but really the, the the beautiful thing is you get to go someplace which would just be nearly impossible to walk to or skin up or climb up to. Um, when we heli ski in South America, it's a lot of times first descents every time. So uh, you know the the you're just saying to the pilot, "Hey, drop me there." We 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 borrowed the the governor's helicopter in Ushuaia, Argentina, the southern tip of Argentina. And uh, we flew out, my brother and I, we had clients and the guy dropped us. We said, we go to that peak. He dropped us at that peak. And as we were getting out, the pilot handed the radio, his radio, the pilot radio back to my brother. And I said, don't take that. He, we need to communicate with that guy. Give it back. And the guy took off. So And I said, he's not coming back. He goes, no, he'll be back. I'm like, no, that that guy gave us the communication. He's not coming back. Turns out the the, the uh, governor needed his heli. So here we are <laughs> on top of this peak, and we're not getting picked up. So 
we had to change our descent, go down a different valley. It took us all day to ski down, climb up, ski down, climb up, all the way out this valley to get everybody out. What an adventure. Um, but, you know, only possible by getting dropped off. Um, yeah. The other thing about helis is that they're, they're most unstable when they take off and land. Um, that's the time you really have to be careful around a helicopter. So when you're unloading or loading a helicopter, when it's taking off and landing and there's a tension, you know, people have to keep their heads down. They can't stick their ski poles up in the air. You know what I mean? Like you got to keep everybody under wrap. So as a, you're sort of fighting the anticipation of what you're about to do with the reality of what you're doing in the moment. And when that's new to somebody, you know, their eyes are wide open, they're, they're nervous. As over time, you don't ever really lose that on the edge feeling around the helis, because unfortunately, even up until last winter, you know, I lose friends heli skiing all the time. And so you have to be vigilant around the bird. Uh, but man, it's addicting yeah. uh, once you do it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, you know, that gives us a sense of the experience of how a, a skier like you would kind of have something different, right? And, and experience the world different. I've got a couple, just a couple more things that I wanted to ask you about. One kind of takes us back to this, what I think would be called the ski bum lifestyle, right? But that's another feature of, it's sort of romanticized, I think sometimes, and has changed over time, I think as cultures changed. But in your book, which is really a great read, and I want to encourage people to check out 30 Years in a White Haze. Um, it's a great book, talks a lot about your experiences, but also I think there's a lot of life in there and a lot of lessons. So I encourage people to check it out. And you had some really fun experiences. And I wonder if you might read I, I, one passage, I think it's my favorite passage in the book. I wonder if you might read it and kind of gets to this question of being a, a kid, if I'll call it that, but like a younger person, but it could be anybody, different ways of going about being out there and the things you'd experience that are sort of supplementary. It might be a helicopter. It might be this. So anyway, maybe you can just kind of tell us about being a ski bum and, and read this. Yeah, this is uh, my first winter as a ski bum with uh, this section I'm going to read. And uh, I had just dropped out of college um, to go live in Sugarbush, Vermont, where my older brother, John, had been living for a while. And um my parents weren't too happy about it. And uh, I was going to be a dishwasher at an inn. And I met the owner and he told me to go across to the chalet. And that's where I was going to live and to meet my roommate. And so here I'll read. Uh, and we write the book in the third person. So just so everybody knows. Uh, Dan met Gary as he stepped into the chalet. There was a thumping sound growing louder as he approached the front door. Upon inspection, he discovered the noise came from a man standing in the middle of the room, throwing a knife at the wall. Ka-ching! Ka-ching! Like Dan had to ask, are you Gary? The owner of the inn had told Dan he shouldn't be fooled by Gary's rough exterior. Um into thinking that into thinking he was an ex-convert got an ex-convict that was hardly the case especially because he was an escaped convict 
from Florida. He carries a knife in his back pocket, Forenza told him, except for when he's systematically tossing it into the wall, of course. He also has Dobermans, Forenza said. Wonderful. Anything else? Oh, yeah. He's a male stripper. So here's Dan stepping into the Elpin Inn with a roommate named Tom, Gary, who happens to be male, a male stripper on the lam from prison in Florida. This was already a bit different from college life, for sure. There was plenty of other quirk, quirks about life at the Elpin Inn, including Dan's downstairs shower, which he discovered had a hole in the ceiling with droplets of water condensing around the edges, dripping into the drain in the floor. Hey, Tom, uh, Gary, I mean, Dan asked his new roommate, whoever the hell he was. There's a hole in the ceiling of the downstairs shower. Yeah, there was, Gary said with a sense of pride. I fixed it. Fixed it? Dan had just seen the damage. Fixed it? You fixed what? Dan asked. I fixed the shower, Gary said. The upstairs shower wasn't draining, so I punched a hole in the floor, and now it drains in your shower. Genius. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> so to kind of like just, you know, sum that piece up, what do you, th from your experiences now, you sort of have a much higher profile as far as, you know, your, your business, you're taking people out, like really sort of a, um, a fixture, right. In the, and in, in the way you travel and the way you interact is, is one thing, right. Back then. And I think a lot of people getting into things, going out there, et cetera, have this sort of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants time, right? The, I think that's kind of the ski bum thing. And, and I guess, how would you describe the value of that? I think there's value in a lot of different ways. Probably now it's nice to be comfortable going to nice places or whatever, but how, how would you describe not just the shenanigans, but the value of sort of experiencing and what you got from experiencing the world like that? Well, my, you know, I term it as life without a net. You know, there is no plan B. Total dedication to what you're doing. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was after a free lift ticket. So a season's pass to wash ditches at night made sense, right? And, you know, living in those sort of situations and figuring out and interacting with different people like escaped convicts just added value, you know? My parents raised us in a way that I think a lot of kids, you know, in my era from the 70s and the 80s were raised, you know, go out into the world. The neighborhood is your playground. Don't sit around the house. We weren't allowed to watch TV, you know, until evenings. So, you know, with seven kids in the house every weekend, my mom just tipped the house upside down and said, get out. You're not, just get out. And, you know, her advice was be home for dinner. And, you know, that was it. So for me, from a very young age, every day in the summer, I would walk a quarter mile from the house to the trolley, take the trolley to the train, take the train to the bus, get off the bus and walk a half mile to the South Boston Yacht Club to sail during the 70s, during the race riots. Um, I was a kid from the suburbs. 
having to navigate all that. And the South Boston Yacht Club is not a highfalutin yacht club. It's a down and dirty, blue collar, working, drinking club. Um, so I learned how to interact with kids on the street corners, the the gang, you know, how to navigate that and and still become a sailor. Um, so when I took that approach to my career that, hey, we're going to navigate here different people, different cultures, different experiences with one end goal in mind, you know, to ski to capture it on film, whatever it would be, I felt that we had an ability to do that, my brother John and I. Um, so I think it's very valuable. You know, you can't set the table for every experience. You know, as a, as a coach, I still coach soccer. Uh, you know, the parents want the table set. Yeah. And they're uncomfortable when the table's not set. They're not comfortable when I don't give them an agenda for the practice, you know, that I, I let it flow. I let it develop. Uh, I'm like, I'm a fundamentals approach. It's a mental side. You know, in, in my teaching, my ski teaching, I'm known as a skiing psychologist. You know, I want to change people's paradigm. If I can change the way they see the, the mountain, I can change the way they see the world. Hmm. And if you can manifest your own reality, that's beautiful. So if somebody has a dream of heli skiing, I can help them manifest that. Somebody has a dream of just keeping up with their kids on skis, I can help that too. And it's not about techniques, it's not about becoming a great skier. It's about strategy and tactics for achieving your goal, right? Um, I noticed in your podcast, you had uh, you, you had you had some Shackleton content. Yeah. And, you know, Shackleton's one of my, you know, I go to, you know, and you know, what you see in Shackleton when the guys are living on the ice and they're writing in their journals is that they were grateful for the moment. Uh, and they're saying things in their journal like how ungrateful I was when somebody fixed my pants at home and now I'm spending all day doing it myself. And then, of course, the traverse of the final traverse they did of the island, you know, they they claim that there was a, another spirit with them, which I believe. Because that's my experience in the natural world, you know? And so the question is, how do you tie in to the guides, the pot, the energy, the collective to guide you where you want to end up? Are you, if you try to resist it or plan it, my experience is not going to work. It might work in, in a framework of success, but not in an experiential framework of success. And with the definition, like I said earlier, where are you with your definition of things? Because if it's rigid, you know, I say to people who come to my ski camps around the world, look, if you're searching for control, you're going to go home frustrated every day. Control has nothing to do with skiing. <laughs> skiing, we're on the edge. This is fun. This is wild. This is a, a, a ride. Control, forget it. Skis aren't designed to slow down. They're designed to accelerate. Otherwise, the ski, you know, that Bodie Miller's ski designer designed his ski to go fast, not to slow down. And so acceleration is part of it. So what are you embracing and what are you judging? Those are really critical moments for the natural world and for our lives. Yeah. 
And so that's that's where I get at, like for kid for young adults to define themselves through these experiences is the foundation of their lives. Because the earlier you experience being uncomfortable, the earlier you experience uh, instability, economically, emotional, whatever that is, the better you are when life really happens to you. And life is going to happen to you. And, you, you know, and so we got to prepare people for this. Yeah. Fantastic. I really appreciate that. And I, I wanted to ask you one more thing and be respectful of your time. So this is kind of the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. Again, in the book, there's so much, you know, there's the incredible story of you being in the snow cave on Mount Elbrus, et cetera. So people got to check this out. There's, this goes on and on. And if we had hours, I would, I've got questions that could go for days, but a different thing you do um, that sort of relates to your podcast kind of to me grows out of, you were talking in one of the interviews you did about how early on to get into ski movies the you know, somebody met you at a, at a slope and said, you know, if you can get some clothes that don't have duct tape tape on them by tomorrow morning, you know, show up and you might be in a Warren Miller film or something like that. Right. So I'm curious about sort of, you know, this, the style, right? Like duct tape at that point probably had style, but you know, the style of skiing, et cetera, and how that's led into sort of your work with Alps and Meters, which is a super interesting company, amazing clothing, which I'm more interested um, in. And, and I think uh, I'm just curious kind of how you, how you think of style and, and how that fits in with Alp, that you work with Alps and Meters. Well, you know, it's, it's great. It's a great question because, uh, you know, in a joking way, sometimes I'm known as the the king of Daglo, right? Because so many of my my uh, classic ski descents were in Daglo outfits. Um, you know, in the early days of ski bumming, you wouldn't be caught dead in anything matching. Hmm. You know, it was old, worn out jackets and pants that sort of said you had grit, right? That you were a core local. And to a large extent, if you see the snowboard movement and free ski movement today, that still exists. Um, But of course, over time, you know, I remember the first time we got a sponsor, I'm like, oh, my God, these clothes are a little fancy. Like, what are my friends going to say? We used to sort of, you know, make fun of the ski models when I was a ski bum and now I was becoming one. So that was a transition. The Alps and Meters clothing is one the quality is outrageous so good and two their definition of style is nostalgia is uh you know sort of that alpine feel the alpinist feel so you know when i show up today at big sky montana in my woolies my woolly pants you know it's it's a subtle detail that you gotta gotta pick up on and then you're like oh that's different yeah. You know, so and their anorak coats and jackets, you know, they're they're different. And of course, all their sweaters are amazing. Uh, so I think they have for me, they have what I was looking for. They they have, you know, a nod to the past with new materials and old materials that work. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the way everything has turned out, maybe it's always been the way. 
all most major brands all look the same. They feel the same. Gore-Tex is Gore-Tex. I mean, that's the way it is. So if, you know, is there a difference between Patagonia and North Face? I don't know. Uh, but with Alps and Meters, there's a difference. It's clear difference. It looks different. It's a different material. They're, they're, they're classic proven materials with county, you know, they're currently making uh manufacturing in St. Louis at like the most automated wool uh, factory in the country, in the world. Uh, so they're on the cutting edge of their, of their design and their manufacturing, but, but, but old, old school things. So I think their style is amazing. It's an amazing brand. They're entrepreneurs, which I love. Uh, it's a young brand. So it's exciting. Um, they're, they've embraced technology, you know, not only with the podcast, but their, their journal, uh, everything they're doing online is amazing. So for me, it's been a good fit. Uh, they're Boston boys, which makes it work. Uh, so we, we understand each other's, uh, when we're parking cars and doing that sort of thing. (laughs) Well, you know, again, I think it's good to be introduced to that. And I just encourage people to, to get to know you, the podcast, uh, designed by tradition, Alps and meters, and, and also check out the book too. And again, this isn't an advertisement. It's just, these are interesting things that I think people could learn something from and have a lot of value. So Dan, I just wanted to, you know, say thank you so much for the time, um, and spending time with us today on the dog watch. No, thank you. And, uh, hope to see you again. Come out skiing sometime. again to Dan for sharing so much about his experiences on the slope and off. Don't forget to check out his book, 30 Years in a White Haze, and his work on the Design by Tradition podcast. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on the Dog Watch.